Stephen, as a biologist, could you tell us a little bit about what it's like to be a scientist? I started being interested in Yonks back when I was about eight, when I got a chemistry set and a copy of Charles Darwin's Origin of Species as birthday presents, because they seem to be ways not merely of trying to understand the world and explaining how humans had emerged, but also to control the world. You could do experiments, you could control things, you could work out what might happen, you could test it. Knowledge and power, understanding the world and controlling and predicting bits of the world are really what being a scientist is about. I think one of the problems often that natural scientists have, that social scientists have, and a lot of the philosophers of science have, is that there's one thing called science. You know, the physical sciences and the biological sciences and the chemical sciences are all doing the same sorts of things. We're not. Physics and chemistry deal with really rather simple matters with a high degree of precision. The essence of biological living systems is complexity and non-reproducibility. The arrow of time works only in one direction for biology, and processes are always irreversible. That makes life very, very difficult indeed. Now, it's often been said that science is very important in Western knowledge. Do you think that science is also quite dangerous? Is it a bad idea as well as a good idea? I suppose to answer that question, you have to ask, well, what is science? And in a sense, science is organised knowledge about the world. It's public knowledge about the world in that it's an attempt to understand in terms that are reproducible and acceptable to anyone who makes the same effort to try to understand them, the way the world is, how it's composed, how its parts interrelate, and so on. Now, I can't see any sense in which that sort of knowledge is in itself either good or bad. There are uses of science that we might like or we might not like. It costs most advanced industrial countries something like 2 to 3% of their gross national product to keep us scientists in, 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 in business asking and answering the questions that we do. And therefore, the questions that we ask and the technologies that we develop are questions and technologies which are driven by our funders. If about half of the money that this country spends on science goes on military research, for example, you get military research out as a result. Now, some people might say that was an abuse of science. I would regard it as a use of science, though not one I approve of. In particular in the past, you've been quite outspoken on the uses of biology to explain social behaviour. That's what we call biological determinism, that everything about us and the way that we behave is in somehow shaped not by ourselves, but by the workings out of selfish genetic programs. Humans simply become the genes way of making other genes. I mean, the infamous words of the Professor of Public Understanding of Science at Oxford, Richard Dawkins, in his book, The Selfish Gene. We are simply lumbering robots there to enable our genes to perpetuate themselves. And so there are genes for everything. There are genes for criminality, genes for infidelity, genes for sexual orientation, genes for violence, genes even for alcoholism and compulsive shopping, probably genes for uh, which way you vote, and certainly genes for whether you end up as a natural scientist or a social scientist. That's biological determinism. And I would argue that that is bad science, not because it's immoral, but because it asks the wrong sorts of questions and it poses questions which seem to be scientific questions, seem to giving scientific answers to who we are and what we are, and yet I think is fatally flawed 
abroad as a scientific project for reasons within biology itself. Take another example of that sort in the US at the moment. There's a tendency to treat children who are disruptive or poor learners in school and claim that the reason why they are poor learners at school is because they have something wrong with their brains, a condition called attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and the right way, therefore, to deal with this condition is to give the children drugs, an amphetamine-like drug called Ritalin in this case. And something like, I think, 8 to 10% of all young American boys between around age 8 to 13 are now on daily doses of Ritalin in order to control their behaviour at school. Now, that, I say, is bad science and bad technology. Although it produces results, it works. The kids are, if you like, doped out and are better behaved at school. But it's putting the problem in the wrong place. It's assuming that everything else that might be contributory to while the child is a poor learner at school, large classes, poor school conditions, poor home conditions, quarrelling family, too many kids, too much poverty, bad teachers. All these other things simply go by the board. The whole of this complex social explanation is reduced to a problem in the brain of the kid and we dose that kid with a drug. Now that, I say, is bad science and bad technology and it's very powerful. How would you define the agenda of biology now, effectively, if you could actually say what biology should be doing. What is good science, in other words? What science, in particular biology, really needs is to move beyond what I would call its reductionist phase, where it's trying to take things apart and discover how things are composed, and into a much more synthetic, integrative phase. We need to understand, above all, complexity. To take examples from genetics, there's a huge program at the moment called the Human Genome Program. Something like 98% of the human genome, that is the human DNA, is identical to that of a chimpanzee. We do not know the rules by which humans grow into humans and chimpanzees grow into chimpanzees. No one would mistake a chimpanzee for a human, and yet nearly all of this DNA is in common. And that's an issue about development, and that is understanding living organisms in four dimensions, three dimensions of space and one dimension of time. What we have to understand is the complexity and dynamism of living systems. One other thing as well, all of us as conscious humans think, feel, experience the world. As neuroscientists, brain scientists like myself, we can study the world. We can study other people's brains, the molecular processes, the cellular processes that go on inside their brains when all these things are going on. How do we put together the two aspects of the objectivity with which I study your brain and my own personal subjectivity? The subjectivity that social science, that novelists, that poets will write about and that all of us experience. And somehow that gulf between the objectivity and the subjectivity is something that a truly unifying human science has to come to terms with and help embrace. Now, when most people think of what a biologist actually does, they tend immediately to think of the scientific experimental situation. Could you say something about where you think the place of the scientific experiment is in biology today? Classically, the idea of experiment was that you collected all these observations and out of these observations came a theory. And that was the Baconian method, if you like, which goes back to the beginning of science. And in fact, of course, we don't do science like that. Karl Popper told us a long time ago that what we do is we make hypotheses and then I test that particular hypothesis by my experiments. If my experiments work, I prove the hypothesis is right and that means I can go on believing in the hypothesis. But the crucial experiment, according to Popper, is the experiment which disconfirms the hypothesis. That is, it says your idea about the world was wrong. 
you've got to have a better idea about the world. Now, it's absolutely true that confirming a hypothesis, having a test of something, all the experiments work, all the technology works, all the analysis works, and you get a result which is beautifully in accord with your theory. That's a whiz feeling. It's incredibly exciting. It's one of the nicest things I know outside sex. Um, but an even more exciting thing is when you disconfirm the hypothesis because then it says nature is cleverer than you and you've got to then think very, very hard about what other way you could possibly have if all the techniques have worked of explaining this anomalous observation you've got. That's, that's a really exciting thing. That's when breakthroughs happen in science. Now, most of us don't do that sort of science most of the time. Most of us are involved not in this sort of grand hypothesis making and so on, but solving rather little puzzles about the world, trying to get a technique to work, trying to measure substance X in Y or whatever. And the essence of the experimental method is a very, very slow thing, not really about breakthroughs. Someone once called it crawling along the frontiers of knowledge with a hand lens. And for most of us, most of the time, it's a bit like that. Now, from your standpoint as a biologist, what would you make of the claims in other fields of knowledge, such as the social sciences, that it is possible to study social processes and social institutions scientifically? Again, it depends what one means by science. If you mean the methods of the physical sciences, then the answer is clearly no. If you mean the methods of the biological sciences, the answer is a bit more closely yes, but still probably no. The one thing about the physical sciences is that your subjects can't answer back to you. The one crucial thing about the human sciences, the social sciences in particular, is that subjects answer back. And in particular, the very act of studying them changes the subjects in which you're studying. The way in which you understand the social world that you're studying changes that social world. Ideas are a material force in that sense, much more in the social sciences than in others. It doesn't mean that the social sciences aren't scientific. Natural sciences, social sciences, experimental sciences, physical and biological sciences are part of the organ knowledge or understanding the world and they are all distinct both from one another and much more sharply distinct as sciences from the way that artists understand the world. Why do you think the public understanding of science has become such a big issue? One reason is that the natural scientists are beginning to get quite antsy about not getting the budgets that we need in order to do our research, and we think that if only we explained to the world what it was that we were doing, they'd love us more and give us lots more money. The other is different, and it's a more optimistic and less cynical view, and that is there is, at the moment, an extraordinary public hunger for trying to understand more about what the natural sciences are saying about how the world is organised. And that's a very important task, and it's something that one should respect. Now, increasingly, social scientists have turned their gaze actually on natural scientists and begun to study them. And what do you make of these sorts of initiatives? What do you think that social scientists can actually learn from studying natural scientists? Well, the first thing to say is a lot of natural scientists resent this process enormously. We believe that not only should we understand the world, but we should be in control of our own history and control of the explanations that we actually offer. What I think they miss is that philosophers of science and social scientists studying the social processes of science can tell us a very great deal about how those processes work. One of the key things that I think that the philosophers and the social scientists have done have been to say you cannot take as natural the assumptions that you make about the world. They are coloured by your values, they're coloured by your ideology, you're coloured by the society in which you live. And they ought to have made natural scientists a good deal more introspective about the metaphors that we use. If we 
talk about brains as if they're computers, if we talk about humans as if they're information processing machines, these technological metaphors which help organise our thoughts are somehow naturalised by people working in the natural sciences. Social scientists make us think about that. The other thing I think which has been tremendously important is the attempts by social scientists to, if you like, deprivilege the natural sciences as the way and the only way of understanding the world. And that is the whole debate over what's been called relativism and uh, whether science, quotes, tells truth about the world or whether it simply holds up a mirror to the world, which is a mirror which is shaped, patterned and distorted by our own expectations of it. And I think that's been an enormously valuable contribution by historians of science, by philosophers of science since Kuhn in the 1960s. So they've denaturalized the status of scientific knowledge.